Hi, it's Arlene Bunn. I'm filling in for Alex Pearson. And here's our podcast today. We have a, a tremendous show and a lot to choose from. And a lot of it had to do with change in our life and kind of looking forward in the future. You know, one of the areas in this pandemic that has got a lot of attention and political partisan attention has been, what do we do in these prisons? You know, there was a controversy about when we vaccinate prisoners. Well, we learned on the show that it's not just about the vaccination. Justin Ling, investigative reporter, joined us, getting inside the prisons and finding out way more than he thought he would. In fact, this investigative reporter now thinks we don't need minor revisions in our prisons. We need major revisions. We're getting some a little bit of good news when it comes to the virus. How is this going to affect the economy? That's what we want to know. When will we be back to normal? It's what we're thinking. Everyone is. We're watching the United States of America and seeing every day so many people get vaccinated. We can feel it. We know it's possible, and we want to know if it's possible here. Nobody is looking forward to this from an economic point of view more than the business community. They've suffered certainly independent business, really shouldering a lot of the fallout of this pandemic. Well, you know, how long can they hang on? And is there a sign that this may be just a horrible nightmare? We had a study and saw some numbers that show, certainly in the city of Toronto, that people are dying to get back to work, get back to the office, all the things we didn't think they wanted to do. We talked with Dan Kelly from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. One of the things also about this virus, and it happens every day, we find out something, and it is about our society, what we view as important, some things we kind of suspected, other things we didn't know. A lot of people working from home are taking advantage of this. It's, it's supposedly changed the way we're going to live for the rest of our life. People are going to get to make that choice. However, we're seeing cases of people who want to work from home, and it doesn't go over all that well. Do we have a bias do we have a prejudice on who should take advantage of this? Well, we just saw it this week in the court of law. There's a judge in Ontario who is working from the Barbados, working remotely, and the location of this judge is being kept a secret. But not everybody's happy about it. We talked to Amir Adaran, who's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa, and he doesn't think this is about law and justice. He thinks this is about we're holding the elites responsible for things that we might want to do ourselves. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? Hey, that is just great. I'm in for Alex Pearson tonight, so buckle up because we're going to bring you the latest on a lot of big changes, and there really has, you know. I, I was thinking before I began here, there was something that felt really familiar. You know, it was a year ago, and I was sitting here, and I was, you know, uh, broadcasting here as this pandemic began. Today, look where we are. We're going to be talking vaccines. We're going to be saying... Oh, you know, what does it mean that people who are 65 and over maybe shouldn't take one of these vaccines? 
the AstraZeneca. But, um, you know, what about the two shots? Now we're going to wait longer. It boosts the immune systems. We got a we got a lot of stuff that's kind of worrying today, but it would have been a godsend if we knew this a year ago. Just before we be in the show, I we, we all have our experiences on what was happening. But I I do I went back and I actually had some old notes where I was sitting here and you know everything was changing. People were broadcasting from home. We're bringing equipment out, and the world's all changing with us. We were washing our hands, and it was right in the beginning. And I remember even sitting in front of a microphone before we were broadcasting at home going, wow, I mean, do I touch it? And, and all those questions, totally for the first time in my life. And then I went into other notes that I was talking about before I began the show. And I was talking about cleaning the groceries. How do you clean your groceries? We had experts on telling us how to disinfect your groceries. There are there were grocery stores famous in Toronto, in the area, because they had bought these machines that after you bought your groceries, there was like this Jetson thing that was washing down all your groceries. And people were like, that is really great. And that was on our mind. We didn't wear masks, though, yet, because we were told no masks. No, 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 no. They were unneeded. We all know how that worked out, but we've all learned a lot, haven't we? And then it was everywhere there was toilet paper. I remember, and I have written down here from almost a year ago, that I had eight rolls of toilet paper, and I was refusing. I think I did some monologue here, but I was refusing to be a toilet paper hoarder. I didn't know what was ahead in my future, and I didn't care because I just wasn't going to be one of those people. And here I am now a year later, hand sanitizer. And then now we know that you can't really get it from hard surfaces, and we were all, I mean, I was running around my house with bleach ruining doorknobs. All the things, and look at where we are now. And But I do have to confess something, and I don't know if I've ever confessed it. You know, face masks were all the rage. They were the answer then. You weren't going to wear a, a mask, but you could stop that spray. Remember all the videos about the spray? And I was searching for, I saw someone with a face mask that went right under their chin. It was this plastic thing. And it looked kind of familiar to me. And I said to this woman, where did you get your face shield? And she said, I will tell you, it's, it is the top of a takeout chicken container. And it tucks under your chin. And she'd stapled it to a baseball hat. So, I mean, I was literally, when I was going to get groceries, and we were all terrified and everything, I was perusing the takeout chicken sections, looking for the perfect thing that would fit a human face and trying to staple it to my baseball hat. Terribly thrilled, I remember, Louis Vuitton, a year ago, came out with a face shield, all beautiful. I think it was 1100 bucks. And now I think, what are they doing with those? Because face shields just don't make it. I mean, we were elbow bumping, six feet was fine with no masks, all of that. And look where we are now tonight. And a year ago this week, first death of COVID in the United States of America. So that is putting things into perspective. And you know what happened today? What happened today is Texas and Mississippi just kicked it all up. They said, forget it. We're out of here. We've got these vaccines. And the vaccines are really going to help us. And the cases are starting to go down. So you know what? We are lifting the mass mandate. And they're rolling back all the COVID restrictions, Texas and Mississippi. 
Here in Canada, you know, we're going to bring you the latest here as we are perusing all these new, we have a wardrobe of vaccines now <laughs> that have arrived, but are we going to be able to get them and how long is it going to take? It's pretty hard. You know, I have friends in America and they're vaccinating. And now we see Joe Biden this afternoon making that big announcement. He's pushing it up. He was, you know, uh, under-promising, now over-delivering, saying, you know what, we're doing so well, I'm going to take it back to May, it's not going to be July, and we're wondering when the heck things are going to start going here. Well, uh, today we're going to deal with our reality, because it is our reality, and we're going to look at the yes and no of people over the age of 65, whether or not they should get that AstraZeneca shot. And then this new, this new protocol of the distance between the two shots, and there's lots of information that that could boost your immune system as well. So there is the good news as we go forward here. It is not Mississippi and it is not Texas. Also tonight, and this is all kind of all related, everything we do, let's face it, somehow related to the pandemic. But th there was a new poll out. I think it came out last night, Leger, and it was showing some really incredible numbers that the conservatives had dropped six points. I know it's only one poll and I know how we feel about polls, but look, we're wondering during this pandemic, are we going to go, are we going to have to vote? So we're looking for signs and the conservatives now closer, according to this poll to the NDP than they are to the liberals. Is that going to make the liberals want to pounce? There's all this, you know, we're looking like we're looking for signs of spring. We're looking for signs. It's really going to be election, but it's not so much. I know they're ordering see-through see face masks and that's been seen as a sign, but the signs have to be whether it is worth the while of the liberals to try to pull this off. And then we're going to ask, we will ask on our political panel tonight you know, what are the ethics of that? How are Canadians going to feel? I know that we've had provinces do it and, and it worked out okay. And maybe that's going to give the liberals confidence. But we don't know a lot right now. I mean, this is in the middle of vaccination. We're trying to get our our, our vaccines, our appointments. You know, the, they're just starting to get them online for people, for the older people over 80. We're not in a great place, but we are going to see political balls here, and there's no other way to put it. We're going to see the raw political machine and whether or not we're going to go to the polls, but we're going to make some predictions here tonight. We're also going to take a look, and again, tied into the pandemic, Justin Ling is going to join us, investigative reporter. And we know all the controversy about do what do we do with the pandemic in the, in the prisons? Do we let people go? And are we being soft on crime? Some are asking or some are saying, you know, it is really just the ethical thing to do. They don't get a death sentence. They're just sentenced to prison. And do we send vaccines there? And is, is that, is that ethical? Or do we just let it go rampant? So we've had to ask ourselves a lot of questions. So Justin Ling went inside the presidency, wrote a big piece for McLean's. And he said it was mind-boggling, mind-opening, and not just about the pandemic, some things he thought about crime and punishment here tonight. For Alex Pearson, I'm Arlene Vine, and this is On Point Global News Radio. And we're back, and it's my pleasure to be filling in for Alex Pearson tonight. You know, one of the themes, if we have a theme here... As we go through tonight, it's about, are we, you know, we know we're doing things differently or we, are we do we have a moment in our brains where we're going to think about things differently? 
And is that one of the things that's going to stick? And the next one, I mean, this this takes a large ask of us here, the prison system. We've been putting our toe in the water here, haven't we, already, saying, okay, you know, do we need to reform the prison system in the United States? They have been asking that question for some time. We know uh, terrible stories in the United States, people, you know, locked up for a lot of years for marijuana offenses. We we talked about this here in Canada. Do we need to lock up people who are offenders in the drug department? And what is crime and what is punishment? And I take a particular interest in this story because I've talked to a lot of uh, criminals, you know, uh, bank robbers, even serial killers that were in prison. And it, just to get your mind in that in that system and really allow yourself to think differently is something that takes a lot of work. My next guest, freelance investigative reporter Justin Ling, has done just that, doing an incredible piece for McLean's on going into the prison system during this pandemic and coming out with some, well, I'll say it, a little bit of mind-blowing conclusions. Justin Ling joining us live. Welcome, Justin. Hey, good evening. All right, Justin, you went in. What were you looking for when you went in? Pandemic, prisons, time to rethink? Or, I mean, what? why did you go through those locked doors? No, it's funny. I mean, it's funny, but you know, I actually started this project last January, so months before the pandemic mm. even hit. And, and the idea was basically you know, to start looking at our prison system and, and really asking the question of, is it worth the money? Right, you know, we spend some 2.6 billion dollars directly on correctional services Canada, which does not even include a bunch of the pension costs for employees. So, really, we're talking about about three billion dollars for our federal prison, just our federal prison, just for you know the 13,000 people or so who who sit in our federal prison. I think we have just completely neglected over the years to scrutinize that cost at all. How much time have we spent worrying about the $1 billion or so we give to the CBC or the amount of money we spend on someone's orange juice or limo rides or whatever? (laughs) This is a massive pot of money. And I think one question I really wanted to dig into was, is there a better alternative? Is there a way in which we can reform this system? You know, let's let's, kind of go through it. Make sure that only the people who need to be in there are in there. Make sure the people that are in there are getting skills and training and support to make sure that when they're released, they're actually going to be productive members of society and stay away from a life of crime. To make sure that we're not mistreating folks to the point where they're able to launch constitutional lawsuits against the government of Canada and win massive amounts of money because they were so mistreated. And a system where you know there's no violence, there's no stabbings, there's no overdoses, there's no violence against corrections officers who have to deal with a lot of stuff. Inside. Okay, what's the biggest way that you yeah. think our prison system is broken? Because, I mean, the people are listening to this right now, and there's a certain segment of the population, or there's a certain time in people's lives. If I, I, I'm even being generous, people change their mind. Or people say, you know, we got to be tougher. There needs to be a deterrent. There needs to be a reason why people don't do bad things. On the other hand, you're raising some questions here. I mean, we if people go to prison, it's not giving them a death sentence there. That's, that's exactly and, right. Yeah. You know, should should they be fearful for their lives? Should they be raped? Should they be killed? And killings do happen in there. 
That's exactly right. I mean, I think that's exactly the question. I think a lot of Canadians have this notion that Canadian prisons are somehow nicer or more humane than American prisons. And more often than not, it's just not the case. There are some good instances of some minimum security facilities that are kind of run like apartments or dormitories that are a little bit nicer, but those are a, a small number. The vast majority of our federal inmates are in medium or maximum security prisons, and they are not pleasant places. Of course, they're prisons. They're not supposed to be. But like you point out, sexual assaults are terrifyingly common. Mm-hmm. Drugs are everywhere. Gang affiliation is commonplace in many of these facilities. Homicides are quite frequent. Suicides are incredibly frequent. Um, Overdoses happen constantly. It really begs the question of, are we, we, do we have a mismatch between how we imagine these prisons and how they actually are? I think that it's absolutely the case because there is way too little scrutiny of this. Now, what has to change about this? Yeah, part of it has to be that we make sure these, these places are not a vacation, but at the very least humane. And right now, they're not humane. I can promise you they're not. Recent data shows that roughly 10% of inmates who are placed in solitary confinement meet the definition for torture. That is, and about a quarter meet the definition for unconstitutional treatment as decided by the courts. So as a baseline, we need a bit of humanity here. But I think what I really wanted to get at with this piece was, is it time to start thinking about depopulating these prisons, right? I understand people have a really natural reaction to that to that idea. They Crime and punishment. Back they the want street. punishment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But you know, here's the reality. You cannot point to any good science or evidence or statistics that suggests that longer sentences or more prison populations reduce crime. It doesn't exist. The data that we have suggests there's no correlation. Some of the data suggests that longer prison sentences may actually increase crime as a whole for a bunch of different reasons. But is so, that all crime, yeah. Justin? Because, you know, if you talk to some of the police who work on the streets, they'll say there are times that they have said in my long career, you know, I'm dealing with these people and, and they're not frightened of going to prison. They're not frightened of that consequence. Things are too lax there. So they're there are people who are listening going, I don't know if I believe that. How do you know this? Yeah, I mean, I, I've spoken to a lot of these inmates who can tell you that you know, they're incredibly afraid of going to prison. What's more is if you look at some of the toughest prisons in the world, in the United States, there has been zero correlation between the strictness of those prisons, the length of those sentences, and the number of people going to prison. I mean, you know, look at the U.S. The U.S. has ratcheted up mandatory minimums for drug crimes, for just basic possession and, and, and dealing. That has not deterred drug use in the slightest. Drug use has skyrocketed in the last several decades. There has been zero, zero correlation between incarcerations for drug crimes and the actual level of those crimes. So it's not working. Like As a starting point, this is not working. And if you start looking at the people actually in our federal prisons, it gets a little bit absurd. So about a quarter of people in our federal prisons are Dangerous, violent offenders who should not and cannot be released, or they're in there for homicide. So let's put those aside. No one is suggesting we start, no. you know, no unlocking all of the no. serial killers in our prison. Homicide, no one's saying maybe, that. yeah. And there was, you know, a chunk who were in there on child sexual exploitation charges, sexual assault, so on and so forth. This very good case to be made that they should not be released either. So, so fair enough. 
But then you start getting into a much more difficult cases, simple assault, property mm-hmm. crimes, financial crimes, drug crimes. Um, about a third of all our federal inmates are there on property crimes or drug crimes, where there is no victim, there is no violent crime. Yet they're still inside a federal prison, and we're paying each for each of those inmates about $110,000 per year to lock them up. Is this really good use for our money? We're not. We're actually seeing incredibly high recidivism rates for those folks. In many cases, we're we're affiliating them with gangs by keeping them inside. We're not giving them any new marketable skills. We're not treating their mental health issues. We're not treating their addiction issues. Many people go inside not being addicted to drugs, leave addicted to heroin and opiates. So, in about a thousand ways, this doesn't make sense. We're not keeping anybody safe by putting drug traffickers in prison. We're not helping them rehabilitate. We're spending absurd sums of money to keep them there. And we're putting their lives in danger. Over what? All right. But let me ask you, Justin, who's doing it? If you're going to suggest a more modern way of looking at this, who's doing that? Who do you think is leading the world in prison reform? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a whole bunch of great examples. Yeah. I mean, as always, you know, the, the, the Scandinavian states tend to do things much better than we do mm-hmm. here. They have some of the lowest incarceration rates in the world and yet still have some of the lowest crime rates. Their prisons are, by all accounts, quite nice, or at least quite nice in comparison to ours. Uh, and it, it doesn't seem to have any negative uh, societal impacts. Uh, but, but the reality is we are among the worst. The United States and a handful of other sort of regressive nations are obviously um, you know, behind the curve on this. But if you're talking about G20 and OECD states, Canada is one of the worst in terms of incarceration rates. Uh, we have some of the worst prisons, and yet we still have a relatively high crime rate in comparison with other like, like-minded countries. So are, you know, there's are, not a lot of risk here. To changing, to be totally honest, there's not a lot of states you could point. But there to. is political risk, yeah. isn't there? Because <laughs> well, we exactly, get back yeah. to crime and punishment, and we get back to the political interpretation of all this. Is is it time that that can be a valid political discussion? And is the pandemic perhaps offering up this opportunity to think about it a different way? I think so. You know, I think it's going to require a politician with a spine, with a bit of mm-hmm. gut. A politician to come out and say, listen, I realize no one likes the idea of, of, of being nice to criminals, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. here's the reality. We are wasting a whole bunch of money on a project that doesn't work. You know, there used to be a, you know, there used to be a thing in this country where there was a part of the reform party who were actively advocating to reduce the correctional services budget and to lock up fewer people. It, they, and they did it on an argument, uh, basically a libertarian argument. The state should be locking up as few people as possible. This is the ultimate deprivation of liberty. Maybe we need to be a little bit more, give a little more scrutiny to how the state does that and how the state wastes our money doing that. I would love to see a world where Aaron O'Toole's Conservative Party comes out and says, it's time we audit Correctional Services Canada. It's time we shut down some of these prisons by the way, some of which have been running for 150 years and are literally falling apart. I would love to see the Conservative Party come out strongly and push for this as a way to bring down our massive federal debt. Unfortunately, you've seen some signs of that. Erno Tula has suggested it's time to stop locking people up for basic drug crimes. Huge and really important first step. You've always seen the NDP say a little bit about this. 
once upon a time, the Liberal Party used to talk a big game about this. Uh, Michael Ignatieff went into the 2011 election promising big change to Canada's prison. Unfortunately, none of these politicians seem to actually keep to their word once elected. They all seem to lose their spine (laughs) as soon as they get to office. And we've not seen the significant bold reform from this Liberal Party or from really any of the parties in the House of Commons that they often profess to have. All right. Justin Ling, thank you. We appreciate it. We're going to think about that. You have a great night, Justin. Thanks for your time. All right. Cheers to you. Justin Ling, freelance investigative reporter, and you can go to mcclaims.ca and read that piece. Are you ready for it? I don't know. You know, when he talks about the prisons, I I walked into Kingston Pen when it was still going, and I'll never forget many years ago getting walked down the worst of the worst where all the serial killers and the worst murderers. And as a woman, I walked down that dark hall alone. And uh, I'll never forget it as long as I live, ever. I would like to welcome Dan Kelly, the CEO of Canadian Federation of Independent Business, as we talk about some of the business stories here that are happening when it comes to the pandemic. And we do have some big ones. Dan Kelly, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Nice to be with you. All right. You know, we we're kind of have a peek inside people's minds here that downtown Toronto workers, they're chomping at the bit to get back to work. We've heard this whole deal about this giant transformation in our business. Is this a sign that maybe things could kind of go back to normal? I think it is. Look, I, I operate from the assumption that, uh, that often we overestimate the amount of change that will happen in the short term but underestimate the amount of change we'll see in the medium and longer term. And, and of course, many of us that haven't traditionally worked from home got a big taste of it over the course of the last year. For some, they've loved it. They've, uh, they've not had to commute. They've saved some money on parking or transit. Uh, they like being at home near their kids. For others, it has been torture. Uh, bandwidth struggles, Zoom meetings scheduled five seconds apart from each other. Uh, trying to balance work and family in a chaotic household. Uh, and so there are as many different views of this as I think there are Canadians. But but look, lots of us, myself included, are, are really, really keen to get back to the office, to work alongside colleagues uh, and not miss out on those fantastic moments that we have to connect with colleagues that, that often are the fuel that, that really guides businesses into the future. It is. Relationships is such a big part of business. What about the economy itself? I mean, we know that businesses are hanging on by their fingernails. This has been an incredible time. They're at odds with government lockdowns. They want more information. However, we're seeing, I think, uh, the economists, don't they call this green shoots uh, in our economy? The GDP, is that, is that going to calm some of the fears of business here? I don't know. I'm, I'm deeply, deeply worried about what's happening. And I do think that we've only seen a tiny fraction of the economic consequences uh, that come along with the healthcare emergency that COVID created. Look, my members, uh, you, you think about those businesses that have been in the most highly affected sectors, retail, hospitality, the service sector like salons and hair salons, nail salons, and, and arts and recreational businesses, these businesses have just been put through the absolute ringer. Uh, and so we're months away from any recovery there. 
I think a lot of people that have white collar jobs like me that can be done almost as easily from home as, as from an office, they may not fully appreciate that there's a, you know, half of the economy has been just obliterated by this. And only when physical distancing ends, will that part of the economy be able to slowly crawl its way back. Our CFIB estimate, CFIB is estimating 180,000 permanent business fatalities uh, before COVID is over. And the average small business is now dealing with $170,000 in COVID-related debt. And that's what we really worry about. You know, some of these businesses who are not going to make it, it um, are there going to be new things? We're seeing this positiveness and people are working at it. And it doesn't help for the people who are losing, but people are shifting and being agile. Is there a sense of desperation with some of these businesses that people... Things might have changed. The foundation may have changed a bit. For sure. I mean, there there certainly is, uh, you know, we've had about five years of innovation in one year. And so the trend lines that existed before COVID, to be fair, like online uh, online retail versus bricks and mortar retail, uh, like delivery, you know, delivering the restaurant meals prior to rather than going to sit down in a restaurant. Some of that is going to continue post COVID. There's no question. And I I do worry in particular for the retail sector because so many small retailers have just sustained massive damage, not allowing them to make the transition to, say, an online marketplace the way they they might otherwise. But but remember, there's also, you know, the the counter trend is that there's going to be a lot of pent up desire on the part of Canadians. Uh, Many Canadians who have a lot more money than they typically do because they have been saving more, the, the data shows us. And, and those Canadians, many of us, myself included, are desperate to get to a restaurant and, and visit our, with our friends, go to the theater or to a movie, um, go to a bar or a nightclub if you're a young person looking to meet someone. I mean, those kinds of things are still going to happen. And so there's lots of businesses that if they can make it through the next few months, will probably find you know, a, a pathway to, to, to have a reasonably successful operation after the fact. In fact, they may do well because there's pent-up demand and fewer competitors, as so many businesses will not have made it. You know, Dan, has it changed something in their minds, though? I mean, you know, we talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome when it comes to war, when it comes to things happen in our lives like illness. Is this left a, a PTSD with businesses? They work so hard. We know what it's like to run a small business. You put everything in it and you I mean, this just blasted out of nowhere. There were no school books. There was no education on what just happened. It's you raise an incredibly important point. Uh, the messages we've sent to entrepreneurs over the last number of months is not one of we've got your back, <laughs> as much as politicians, uh, both federal and provincial, have tried to, uh, to make that out. Um, in fact, we've sent the message that being an entrepreneur, you're kind of on your own. And if you have a salaried job, uh, if you work for government or you work for a big corporation, uh, you've probably come out of COVID either um, you know, the same or better. Yes, you've had some negative personal effects of it, but you haven't had the financial hit associated with it. For entrepreneurs, many of them have just had the wind knocked out of them. We've sent a terrible message to the next generation of entrepreneurs because the support programs have been really targeted at individuals and not at keeping businesses afloat, uh, even though they were closed 
not because they were bad businesses, but because we needed to protect society. So I do worry that that they're the next crop of entrepreneurs that are going to come and fill these restaurants that are no longer there, the, the nail and hair salons that are no longer there, the retail shops that close. They may not be in large numbers the way that we're used to. Canada every year, have, you know, entrepreneurs do shut down in good times and in bad. But typically, as a business closes, there are more Canadians w- willing to step up and fill that gap. Uh, I, I worry that there may not be as many startups to fill the vacancies that, that are left by bus- people that leave their businesses altogether or just go bankrupt along the way. What are you feeling here today, Dan? It seems that everything changes so quickly. We're getting a little, as we said, we began this with this little snapshot of what people are thinking. And it's almost like, you know, that first breath of spring. I can imagine that's how it feels to businesses here. But, but is there some bitterness there all along this journey? And I think I may have asked you before, are business people thinking about this politically? Do they have, do they have some anger there? There's, there's no question there is a residual anger, particularly at the Ford government. Um, I would say Ontario's handling of the pandemic has been god awful, uh, probably the worst of any province in the entire country. And with the most anti-small business measures in the entire country as well. Of course, the policy of allowing big box stores to remain open while shutting down small retailers is just one example of, of, the, of the Ford government's failings to, to try to accommodate and address the economic challenges that small businesses are facing. So yes, there is a lot of anger. Um, anger at a government that might be perceived as being small business friendly under normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so on the, on the federal front, it remains to be seen. A lot of business owners are, of course, watching the vaccine rollout with, with, uh, with great interest. I will say, as we, as we talk uh, right now, um, a big, big part of this will be what happens on Friday of this week. On Friday, we're expected to learn whether the lockdowns will begin to end or will be continued uh, across Toronto and Peel. Uh, And in Canada's largest city, in in the GTA, uh, we will now be facing, as of I think tomorrow, that we'll have 100 days of the second lockdown Mm -hmm. of the business community. A hundred days. Yeah. And if we can find our way on Friday to start to end that, and then Monday of next week begin to reopen small retailers and restaurants and hair salons, I I feel like maybe there'll be a bit of a turning of the page and we'll be on a pathway with with some, you know, we've protected the most vulnerable with vaccines, it seems, at this stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like there may be a bit of a turning point next week, uh, at least a pathway to a turning point, and I'm sure hoping that we take it. All right. Dan Kelly, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thank you. Take care, Dan. Thank you for joining us. All right. We appreciate it. I'm Arlene Bonin. This is On Point Global News Radio. Welcome back for Alex Pearson. I'm Arlene Bonin. This is On Point. Boy, there have been a lot of strange stories during this pandemic about what is happening in our judicial system. <laughs> and, you know, whether you're a cat trying to fight your, your speeding ticket or whatever, I mean, it's, it's really been a lesson. Now we have another one. We have uh, the court 
refusing to say where a judge here in Ontario is located. Where are they? Are they in the Bahamas? Are they in another country? And does it matter? Joining us is Amir Adaran, who's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa. Welcome, Amir. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Arlene. How are you? Hey, I'm good. What do you make of this? I mean, it seems very strange. People are asking questions. Does it matter if if a judge is in another place? It seems so mysterious. I don't think it matters. I, I really don't. Um, I can understand, of course, people feeling upset that some people... Um, especially those with more money to spare, are able to go elsewhere during the pandemic while they may be stuck at home. And and, uh, it's understandable there would be upset about that. But when you look at the job of a judge, which is to adjudicate a case and make a decision on it, what difference does it make where that judge is in the current day and age? Everyone is doing business remotely. Everyone who is in a white collar job is, is all too familiar with zoom by now. I don't think there's a significant difference between a judge or a business person or myself, a professor handling what we need to do over zoom. And in that case, where does it matter where we're seated? That's our new world. Yeah. You know, location just doesn't matter. You know, what's interesting about this is we've seen it with politicians and it has crossed a lot of people's minds. Well, if we're all saying that we can work from different spots, are we being prejudiced? Are we being very select on who can do it? Are we pointing fingers? And is it happening with people who may be from a different economic class? As you say, I mean, if it's professional people, is this a damn the elites, Amir? Because it is true. We're opening things up. We're seeing people do things in so many ways. Do we have some prejudice and bias here in some degree? I I think we definitely do. I mean, you know, I, I am, as a lawyer, called upon to do cases these days, and they're all on video. And it really doesn't make any difference to me how many kilometers there are between me and the judge, because the one thing that is certain is it's not in person. I'm not in the same room as the judge, which would be nice, but that just doesn't happen anymore. And when that's the case, the number of kilometers is pretty irrelevant. I mean, a long distance phone call or a local phone call, we don't think of those things as being radically different. Um, as long as you're going to have video justice administered over Zoom, then I think the backlash we're seeing is purely an anti-elitist one. I, I don't think there's any sense whatsoever in criticizing the judge for this. Now, that said, I am pretty critical of the court mm-hmm. because if the judge is out of the country, if the judge is out of the country, just come out and say it, for God's sake. There, there's no reason to hide that. And and I think the court is being very silly here and trying to hide it. Yeah, and that adds to it because they're saying it may be anyone's business where somebody else is, but it's not where the judge is. Are we going through kind of an evolutionary moment, would you think, Amir, here? As we look at, you know, everything's changing and we keep asking ourselves, you know, how dare they, who do they think they are? Or when we cheer them on and say, isn't that great? Isn't it great if somebody at the Golden Globes can join us from their home? Isn't it great if people, if we can get a doctor's appointment online? We've got a lot of figuring out to do. It's kind of almost like a new world order here, isn't it, culturally? It is. 
I mean, we are, we are going to have to, as a culture, settle on how we feel about remote work and distance work, um, because there is no going back to the old world, even once we're all vaccinated and COVID is just a bad memory. We have left that world where you have to do everything in person. And we are never going back to it. And there are actually certain good things about it. I used to have to travel a great deal for work. Um, there was a time in my career where I would go to Europe every few weeks. It was awful. It was terrible because it was time away from family. And it was time dealing with jet lag and, mm-hmm. and the stress of, of that. I am much happier in a world where travel isn't expected as much of us. It's better for the planet. It's better for our lives with our our children. It's better for our mental health and our physical health. I don't think that it makes a lot of sense now to reject remote work simply because of anti-elite sentiment. Amir, do you think, I mean, we keep waiting for things to go back to normal. And and one of the things we're really getting is not everybody is going to walk back into their place of work. I mean, there is businesses that are already shedding extra floors like leaves so that they can stay alive. You know, are, are we going to go through this process here? And could it even expand into some of the services that we expect? Can we get it into our mind? I mean, will it be a couple of years from now that we could laugh that we even did this interview? Do you think that's going to stick as well, the medical aspect and the legal aspect? Look, parts of it are not a laughing matter. The fact that the Ontario Superior Court is being secretive about where the judge is, I have no kind words for that. That's just, that's just pointless. And I'm picking a very polite word. I could pick many more <laughs> insulting words than pointless. You know, there's just no reason to be, to be misleading towards people in Ontario that way. But in terms of our future as a society with distance work, we are going to see many positive things come of it in terms of the environmental impact. And as I said, the impact on, on time away from family, we're going to see negative things too. You know, a, a virtual workplace where you don't meet people face to face at the proverbial coffee pot or photocopier is also a place that will be difficult to unionize. This is a threat to the union movement among other things. So. We are going to be in for many years of cultural transformation. Um, and I suspect we will look back on this interview in, in a couple of years time and say, what was the big deal? We may. I mean, yeah, it's all, it, it's all a, a, a change. And we already have it into our head. Who can change and why can they change? And is that good for me? A final question. Let me ask you, how easy do you think or how difficult it is for these permanent changes to be here? I think we don't really have much of a choice, do we? You know, I mean, especially in Canada, where our vaccination effort is, is one of the worst in the developed world, mm-hmm. probably the worst <laughs> at this mm-hmm. point. Um, you know, we're not getting back to normal as quickly as other countries. Um, it's going to prolong our economic pain. Just to give you an example, uh, you know, the U.S. will be fully vaccinated or as fully as it can get with a lot of vaccine deniers in a few months, and Canada won't be. Will the Americans open their border to us? I don't think they should, to be honest. If they're vaccinated and we're not, that will cause more stress to our economy and you know, more pain to businesses that don't need more pain just because our government failed on vaccination. 
If they're clever, though, they'll start planning as much as they can to be done online because this reality will stick with us for quite some time through through all of 2021, for sure, and perhaps into next year. Amir Adaram, thank you for joining us. Amir is Professor of Law and Medicine, University of Ottawa, also a trained epidemiologist. You get a lot in this package. Take care. Have a great evening. We appreciate it. Take care, Arlene. Stay safe. All right. Will do. I'm Arlene Bynum, and this is On Point Global News Radio. Well, thank you. There is our podcast, and I'm Arlene Bynum for Alex Pearson. And, of course, you can listen to On Point Every day, live, 6.30 to 10. And take care. Don't go away. This is Global News Radio.